So turn in your Bibles to COVID chapter 19. <laughs> Thou shalt not COVID thy neighbor's hot tub. That's a... I'm not making light of it. I'm bringing it up. Okay? I'm just bringing it up. We live in a time that's saturated in, in this topic. And uh, whether, whether, whatever your opinion is on it, this has been a really hard, people, hard year for a lot of people. And I want to speak to you today in a way that encourages you and fortifies the right things. I want to fortify the hope that you have in the gospel. There's a lot of people in this church who own small businesses, really been suffering and hurt because of the, what's been going on. There's a lot of people in this church who are in the medical field uh, that, that have to figure out how to burn the candle at both ends and, and stay, stay alive and figure this all out. Uh, there's a lot of people in this church who have something as simple as just a child who can't go to school. You planned on having this, this kid in school and work, and, and how, how do you figure that out and balance out the stress of, of this? And not to mention the stress and everything that's been put on the kids. Our hearts break for, I mean, some of the stuff that we're reading about that kids have had to go through and, and the, the, the fallout that they're having to deal with because of all of this. Now, I say all that because I want to encourage you in the midst of all of this with something that is more resilient, with something that is great, and, and it is the hope of Jesus Christ that he places in all of our hearts. Each and every one of us here has a hope that Christ places in us in the age to come. That, that, that is re, that's the resilience. I mean, it's not contingent upon whether or not this world gets better or worse. Either way, we still have this hope. Um, and I say that as well to, for your benefit, but also for the benefit of the people that are around you. All of the things that I just rattled off about what people are struggling with, your neighbor and coworker and uh, family members, they're all dealing with the same things too. And some of them might not have the hope of the gospel that you have. So the more that you can focus on protecting that, affirming, reaffirming, restructuring, and making sure that that hope isn't threatened but is protected and is on display, then the world is able to see something like a city set on a hill, something bright and shiny and, and attractive, something that you can say, even though we might be hard crushed on each side, we're not going to be crushed, even though we might be perplexed. We're not in despair. Even though we might be persecuted, we are not abandoned. We are not abandoned. Anybody with me on this? We are not abandoned. Even though we might be struck down, we are not destroyed because there is something resilient that has been placed in our hearts. It's the hope of Jesus Christ, his redemption that keeps us going. As we hope in not what is seen, but that which is unseen. It carries us forward. And so let me encourage you today, even as uh, we read from the Gospel of John. As a community, we've been studying John since February. I want to invite you to turn to chapter 12, if you would. <clears throat> this is ruining the visual if I set this here. Sorry. Okay, so John chapter 12. You might have noticed that this chapter we have been studying for like five weeks. This is notable because for chapter 9, 10, 11, 
We did one week. We just, want, hey, we just read the story. We, you know, this has been five weeks. You might even not even remember that long ago. Remember, Dr. Stoll took us into the living room of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We saw this beautiful act of sacrifice from Mary when she poured out the most expensive thing that she, think about the most expensive thing that you own. Is your house or 401k, I don't know, whatever. And, and, and think about just giving that up. Uh, for, for what reason? Sorry, this mic's bothering me. The next week we saw Rod take us like a fly on the wall into the back rooms of the Sanhedrin as they de- deliberated and tried to figure out ways to plot and conspire to kill Jesus. Why? Because of some of the things that he threatened. Their power, their standing, their, their, their situation that they had worked so hard to have uh, in light of Rome. We then saw the next week, uh, Brian Robinson shared about this bizarre parade that happens where all these people are cheering Jesus on on Palm Sunday with the palm branches, saying Hebrew words at him and singing his songs and (coughs) celebrating him. That ends with a a line that said the the Greek, or, or no, the Pharisees are hanging on to each other's collars and they're saying to one another, look, the whole world is going after this guy which is exactly what happens. The very next story, there's a Gentile Q&A with Jesus, people from the whole world. Okay, they're talking to Jesus and that line that I love in that story where uh, Philip brings, that comes to Jesus and says this line, the Gentiles wish to see Jesus echoing through our hearts for thousands of years, a desire to see him. You know what Jesus says? Here's what you're gonna see. You're going to see the Son of Man lifted up. You're going to see a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die. But if it dies, it will then germinate. It will bear much fruit. It will grow into something else. This is what you're going to see. Then they hear a voice. It's very rare. One of, the, one of the few times the voice of God is recorded shouting out from heaven, talking about glory, glorification, which leads us to our text today. It'd be a happy privilege to read this for you if you would stand with me to read John chapter 12 and verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. On account of this, they could not believe, because Isaiah said elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, nor turn and out heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. He spoke of him. At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. I'd like to note that the word for praise here is the exact same word being used in 41 as glory. For they love the human glory, the glory of man more than the glory of God. In the verse 44, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. This is his final public speech in John. Whoever believes in me does not believe only in me, but in the one who sent me. 
But if you look at me, you're seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge the person, that person. I did not come into the world to judge but to save. There is a judge, the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know whatever the Father has commanded will lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Amen. John chapter 12 marks a turning point in the Gospel of John. I like to say it's the end of the beginning and it's the beginning of the end. See, at this, this turning point is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. But it also becomes now this, I mean, this is all events that are happening in, the la in, in a few days here, actually. The, end, the last entire half of this book is marching towards the cross. The end, the beginning of the end. Shorthand, the theologians give to uh, the first half of the Gospel of John, it's called the Book of Signs. But also, the signs mean something. So they give this other short into the second half of the book of John. They call it the book of glory. Glory is what I want to talk to you about today. But before I do, as this is the end of the beginning, I would like to just sort of open up a group chat on some of the things that we've learned for the first 12 chapters. I know it might be hard for some of you with masks on to say things, but try and belt it out. Is there any themes that you've seen in the last 12 chapters or noticed uh, developing as we've studied? Anything that comes to mind about the first 12 chapters that we've studied? Thank you. Light and darkness. It's like on every page, every chapter, there's some sort of don't walk in the darkness and walk in the light and the light of the world. I mean, it's light is such a huge theme. What does it even mean? Remember, I think in, in the very beginning of the book, there's that verse, uh, I think it's verse 5, where he says, in him was life, and that life was the light. That life was the light of man, and, and it's shown into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This theme, I think... I remember Rod preaching on this in February. He said that the life that Christ brings, the zoe, this different fullness of life that he can bring to your life that people often don't experience, that people can't experience without it. Thank you. I remember a philosopher once said, it is for the scientist to figure out if there can be death, life after death. But it's for the theologian to figure out if you can have life right now while you're alive. That life is the light. Hey, any other things that you guys are thinking about before I get too carried away? Promise. I'll just celebrate the themes. What were you going to say? Can't forget the thesis of the whole book. What does he say? I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and it, believing in him, you might have life. We always got to be thinking when we're reading what he's writing. How does this help someone to believe and to continue on believing. Thank you, Ryan. Give me one more. I could go on and on, but I want to hear from you. God loves 
The love of God. Oh, very good point. There is a lot of contrast, for those of you who might not have been able to hear, some of the love of God being revealed and contrasted in so many different ways through certain people. You, you see this motif of John where he sets uh, different people right next to each other to show uh, various ways of, of, of interacting with Jesus. And even people, who, what, what I see is the people who are most desperate, they see the love of God in John way more than everybody else who are not desperate, who, are, you know, who don't have faith. The I am statements, that could be one too that's been developing throughout. Have you ever wondered, does anybody, you know, in your life they say, what does Jesus say? What does he say he is? What does he say about himself? I know what people say about Jesus, but what does Jesus say about himself? I mean, so simple to, to just point to these I am statements where he says, I am the light of the world. You ever think about maybe you have some... You feel like you're in the darkness? Maybe you should ask him to be the light for you. I mean, I am the gate. You tired of being the person who's choosing who's in and who's out? Or I am the good shepherd. You need somebody to follow. You know, it's, it's so cool to see these I am statements developing. And I'm sure there are many more that we could carry with us. You know, the very first line of the book is in the beginning. There's this theme of like... Uh, contrasting the creation story in Genesis. There's all these references to Moses and Passover, and those things are layering up and developing as we've arrived to chapter 12. One of the biggest ones is this theme of signs. The signs. You guys anybody remember? Could you, could you say one of the signs? What's the first sign? Water to wine, right? These signs... I count so far, we have six signs. Now, there's other miracles and things going on, but what do I deem as a sign? A sign is a public spectacle, an event of a miraculous event in public. Okay, it's a public thing. You see that in the water to wine, uh, at the end of that, it says, this was the first of his miraculous signs that he did in the presence of many witnesses. So we have six of those type of things that have happened so far. But as John is using not just a, he's not using language that just says these miraculous events, he calls it a sign for a reason because the sign points to something. The sign, according to John 2.11, the first sign, he says, this was the first miraculous event that pointed to the glory of Christ. What I'm going to talk about today is the glory of Christ. The glory of God. What even is glory? What is the difference between glory of God and the glory of man? And the last thing I want to uh, look at is, what is the word that will judge in the end of the age that Jesus refers to at the end? Just a personal question that I have that I threw in there. Aside from glory, uh, what is this word of accountability that he references? Is anybody interested in that? I have these questions, so I just pretend that everybody has the same questions as me. <laughs> what is glory? I know that this is one of those words that you find all over the Bible, right? 
uh, do everything in the glory you know, of God, or we have fallen short of the glory of God, or the, 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 the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the, the earth, or, you know, all this glory, glory, glory. But what does it mean? I'm afraid sometimes these words become just jargon that we use, and we're not really all on the same page with what it is. Part of the reason for that is it's a difficult word to track down, just like love. Just like beauty, if I asked you to just define it, you know, you'd have to find a bunch of different things to compare, and then we'd have to find the common denominator and agree, right? The Hebrew word for glory goes back a long ways, and it's kavod, which carries with it just a weight, honor, reverence, the significant of the most significant things. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You might remember kavod. At Avika, okay, I'm just kidding. In English, it's not glory. It says, honor your father and mother. But this is the word for glory. Give, don't take them lightly. Okay, that'd be another way of saying they have a lot of weight. This tradition grows. And, you know, as I started to reflect on it in my own life, I've even grown to understand it more as I've experienced more of life. Maybe in my youth, I would say that glory, if I was to just draw a picture of it, would be something like clouds with like light. Of course, you gotta have like bright light. We're talking about glory. Crowns maybe, <laughs> or a throne. Uh, what would you draw? A, a trophy, right? Or a sports shot or somebody that, I'm not into sport. A like, Grand slam, right? Uh, you know, what is glory? And uh, but then things changed for me. And I'll tell you when I can point back to a time where it changed. July 14, 2012. What happened on July 14, 2012? I was standing underneath the willow tree. All my friends and family were there. And this woman walked towards me. And she looked me in the eyes and without hesitation said to me, I do. And her countenance weighed upon me like a weight of solid gold. Is this glory? Is this weight? I've often said that uh, the closest thing a man could get to, to the holy of holies of old, is to be present in the delivery room when his baby's being born. I was there when my daughter Penny was born and they handed her to my wife to hold for the first time. And though she only weighed seven pounds, her weight upon our hearts was so immense and still is. Is this glory? A little phrase that I came up with to illustrate this is, glory is not found in matter, but glory is what matters. It's what matters the weightiest and most important things. This is glory. The tricky part about it is, if we can come to a, a conclusion together about that this is acceptable, that we're talking about the most significant and weighty things, is in a fallen world, we can give significance and weight to the wrong thing, to things that don't deserve it the things that trick us or the things that, that in the end are empty and, and are light and insignificant. This is why I would like to move on to understanding what is the difference between the glory of man and the glory of God. Notice that verse that I keep drawing from, uh, verse 43, I think it is, where they, they are 
they are in love with the glory of man. Now, what is the glory of God? And I want to ask Isaiah to tell us that because did you see in verse 41 where it says that Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus. John is trying to make a point with this. He's trying to talk about something that these guys don't believe in or something they're ashamed of. See the shift there? The first group of people refuse to believe in whatever this is and the second group of people, they see it but they're afraid, they're ashamed, they don't want to be associated with it. Uh, and, and so what he does is he shows us these quotes from Isaiah. He's got Isaiah on the mind, and he wants to help, ask Isaiah to help us figure out what the contrast is here. Well, for him to bring up the signs at the, in verse 37 and say, hey, after all of the signs, which were pointing to something, were, were done in their presence, they, were, they would refuse to believe in it. What? <laughs> Sorry, not the sign. They're believing in the sign. How could you not believe in the sign? The sign happened. It was a bunch of food. You ate the food. There's, you cannot believe in that. They believe in the wine. Okay, the, the sign. They don't believe in what it means. They don't believe in what it's pointing to. They refuse to accept the glory that it reveals. Why? They're in love with the glory of man. Isaiah develops this in a little interesting way I'd like to present to you. What's going on in the, in the world of Isaiah where these texts are, are brought before us? Well, the first one you can see there that says, who will understand, who, who will believe this message to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? This from, is from one of the most famous portions of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53. What does the arm of the Lord mean? It's the same expression that we would use in English where we say, I pulled up my sleeve. You know, we rolled up our sleeves and got it done. To reveal his arm, he said, pull up his sleeve to show his strength and ability to accomplish a task at hand. What's going on in the world of Isaiah? What task does God need to, to figure out for them? Well, in their world, they're actually, their whole country and nation is falling apart. They've been divided kingdom. You know, the, the north is completely gone. Isaiah's in the south, and they are really struggling. Now, he speaks to the leadership because what he sees happening is something really foolish. The leadership of the southern kingdom are trying to make a treaty with Egypt to, to get power and to get some sort of ally there. And Isaiah is like, are you kidding me? Guys, living in the promised land, rule number one, do not make treaties with idolatrous foreign nations. Okay, you should not be doing this. Rule number two, it's Egypt. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> We're not trying to become slaves of these guys again. What are you thinking? So then he uh, gets ridiculed and mocked. They mock him with nursery rhymes. They basically belittle him and say, you, you know what? You're talking to us. You're making it too simple. Uh, we're the big boys. We're going to make decisions here because now things are complicated. We have to take matters into our own hands. We can't just do what God said to do. Too simplistic. Uh, and so they reject his message. What happens in Isaiah 53 is it is preceded by 52, this big statement by God that says, Shout, O daughter of Zion, look up, uh, gatekeepers. I am going to redeem your nation. The nations will all look upon you and see the salvation of my arm. But then he goes on to say, get ready, because this is what they're going to see. 
Rod read a little bit of it last week. You're going to see. My servant, he shall act wisely. He will be exalted and lifted up. But just as many people are going to be ashamed of him. They're going to be appalled at him because his appearance is so disfigured. It's beyond that of any other human man. His, his form is going to be marred beyond the likeness of humankind. Nations will marvel. Kings will shut their mouths because if they don't understand. Then here's the line that John quotes. Who's going to receive this message? To whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Who's going to believe that this is the way? That the Lord is going to redeem this nation? Are you kidding me? He was like a humble root uh, that sprung up out of dry ground. He was rejected and despised. There's nothing about his appearance that would be majestic or beautiful or draw us to him. We, we rejected him and esteemed him not. This was a message that they were unable to believe because they, like the people in John 12, had a different plan in mind for how glory works and for how victory works and for how success works. And their idea is incompatible with Isaiah 53. John doesn't leave it there. He makes a really interesting connection to chapter 6. He says, for this is also said in another place, and then quotes Isaiah 6. Another famous passage in Isaiah. It's the calling, the unique calling of Isaiah, where he sees the Lord lifted up on a throne, and he sees angels uh, singing, and he's, he's, it's the most glorious sight. And in that specific scene, just after his response, he then goes on to say, God speaks to him, who shall I send? Here am I. And he's like, nobody's going to listen to you. Why? Wouldn't it be amazing to find out that what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord lifted up would look like something like he wrote in Isaiah 53? This would explain some of the contrast as to why people would reject it. Think about it. If he would have just said, okay, take a picture of what he just said. Why would people, as he goes out, not, and if he would have saw, he would have saw a king, a, a great leader, somebody up on it, he's beautiful, he's majestic, and he goes out and tells the world, hey, you'll never guess what I saw. I saw God, he is the most amazing uh, warrior king. Why would they reject that? They don't reject that. They deeply desire that. But what if Isaiah said, if we asked him, just describe to us what you saw that day. And he said, one who was rejected by men, smitten. One who surely, he bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. We thought he was smitten by God, but it was my wounds. He was pierced for my transgression. Upon him was the, uh, the thing that brought us peace, crushed him. By his wounds, we are healed. Imagine now the response that Isaiah has to this where he is broken and says, I am so unclean and unworthy to be in your presence. This is glory. This is the glory of God. 
Isaiah saw the glory of God. He spoke of it. People rejected that message. People saw the glory of Jesus. They rejected that message. It goes on. The story continues in verse 42 and 43 where they say, actually, some people did see it. Some people did believe in Jesus. They saw it, but they were ashamed and embarrassed by it. What were they embarrassed by? What were they afraid that what that is here articulated as they loved the glory of man and they were embarrassed by the glory of God? We can kind of actually look into this chapter and see they weren't embarrassed by being like they weren't embarrassed by Jesus in a sense. They just threw him a parade. They all are they're all dancing and they're affirming him. And on paper, this looks like they're all getting saved today. Luke 19 doesn't doesn't it say Jesus saw that and he wept. It broke his heart. And he said, What you you are missing it. The things that you think is gonna make for peace, this is not what makes for peace. What they desired was incompatible with the glory of God. What the people in Isaiah desired was incompatible with the vision that he gave. This is why they can't believe in it. What they wanted was power. I mean, this is the difference between the glory of man and the glory of God. One of them seeks to give power over and above other people to control, to oppress, to win, succeed. The other gives away power in order to save and redeem and, and have people who are in prison flourish. Have we learned nothing from the Lord of the Rings? The ring cannot just be worn by the right person. I'm afraid that some of us think that the glory of man, the ring of power, if it's just, you know, if we just have the same power but just give it to the Christian faith or give it to the Christian God, then that's, that's compatible. Yeah, we can, that is what they're doing at the triumphal entry. They're trying to get Christ Jesus to be this political leader, to be this person, to make Jerusalem great, to make these people uh, uh, have power against Rome over and against them, violently to, to, to take, take down Rome. Place that ring of power on Jesus and we'll win. The glory of God is not by gaining more power while we destroy other people. The glory of God is to give up power in order to save people. Remember what Paul said about Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he gave it up. He took on human form. And being found in the likeness of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death on the cross. And in because of that, he was exalted and lifted up and given the name. What is the name that is above every name? yod heh He's been given the title, the Lord. This is what he did. And every knee will bow and tongue confess. This is the glory of God. I'm afraid that sometimes we might be, be embarrassed by that. I mean, you can say to me, Dan, how do these people, how can you hold them accountable for a cross that hasn't happened yet? It's not really fair. I mean, they thought that he was supposed to be the warrior Messiah, right? I mean, they didn't know. My response would be, Isaiah saw it. 
He didn't see the cross, but he saw the glory. John the Baptist saw it. One look. One look at Jesus. In the context of repentance of a system of religion that's been oppressive, he's got these people out there, and they're all humble, and they see Jesus, and they see him, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The woman at the well saw it. Empty well that she had. She saw the fountain of living water right before her and said, you're the Christ. Blind man saw it. With every step that he took of faith, he became closer and closer to that line. I don't know how to reconcile all you guys' problems with this guy, but I'll be, ba- I'll be kicked out for, for him because I once was blind, but now I see. He worshiped Jesus. Probably the best example that we have, uh, in my opinion, is in this chapter alone. There's the triumphant entry, the glory of man, set right next to Mary, who takes her inheritance, she takes her value, the thing that could bring her safety, security, and comfort, and she pours it out at Jesus' feet. Not so that she could get some political gain or use him for her, uh, you know, whatever she wants. Jesus says it. You guys know what she's doing. She's preparing me for my burial. She sees it. She affirms it, identifies with it, even to the extent where in Mark, doesn't Jesus say, wherever the gospel is preached, this is what I'm looking for. Somebody who is willing to affirm the cross and it be done in a valuable and costly way. We can do the same thing in our day. We can affirm the cross or we can also believe in it but sort of be embarrassed by it at the same time. I've had some conversations with people this year where it seems like getting a little close to, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, I want Jesus to be the triumphant entry Jesus, the, the one who wins, the one who beats, the one, the, the one who creates political power for me. We identify with the cross by forgiving debts, by looking at somebody who owes you something, and by all accounts of the power of this world, yeah, you could hold them accountable, but you say, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm letting it go, and I'm going to show you how much I value the cross. We do it by uh, finding ways to seek reconciliation and redemption with people where the world might give us permission to not and to just win and to hold them accountable for as long as we want, but then to say, you know what? I'm going to reconcile with you. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to find a way to be at peace with you because the cross has broken down the walls of hostility between us, and I affirm that in a valuable way. Jesus said it in verse 22 or 21, I think, uh, in last week's text. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you follow me, you're going to follow me by losing your life. The world might look up to Jesus and see somebody with a crown of thorns and is a loser. But when we see the crown of thorns, we see the crown of glory for the King of kings and Lord of lords. One of the ways that we affirm the cross is by taking communion together. So if you have the elements, or you don't, there's some in the back, get them ready. Get your family ready to take this together. And if you are willing to and want to affirm the cross with me, uh, then please, let's do it. The band's going to come back up. And... 
while you're getting that ready, I would just like to give a simple answer as to that last speech that Jesus made in public where he said, there is a word that will judge you in the end. What is that word? Is it the whole Bible? Maybe. Is it the red letters? Maybe. Is it a synthesization of that? My suggestion would be, it's the words that he just spoke, where he said, I did not come into the world to judge, but to save it. And that word stands out there before us all, where we can say, I will let you save me. And if I will not let you save me, that's something that's going to have to be reconciled. Our job today is to answer the question, will you let him save you? Will you let him save you? Will you let him be your savior? Will you come to him today and say, save me? Save me from the slavery that I've lived in for many years. Save me from this and forgive me freedom. And he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body that was broken for you. Take and eat. Receive his freedom. Identify with the cross. And likewise, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. If anybody knows the venom of sin and how deep it goes and needs forgiveness and wants to affirm that, that that was done through Christ, then drink with me. Amen. I'd like to say a prayer with you, um, and then we're going to ask some baptisms after that. Show us your glory, Jesus. Show us your glory. If any of us are like those teenagers who got married and didn't buy enough wine and are about to get shamed, are afraid of getting publicly shamed, show us that you're the one who will remove that shame. You'll take responsibility for it and deal with it yourself. If there's any of us who have just been in a broken sacrificial system, it's been empty and for a long time, disrupt it today. Turn the tables over and get some, uh, draw our attention all to you. If there's any of us today who feel just destabilized because something that's happened in our family, like the royal official, we come to you and we ask for your word. Just speak your word and we'll walk out in faith. If there's any of us who just feel like our soul is empty and hungry, we're not sure how this is gonna all work out, uh, we look to you the one who takes five loaves, two fish, and you can uh, turn it into the bread of life for our souls, satisfy even our deepest desires. There's, if there's any of us who would just say, I've just been blind for a very long time, and I'm just, I feel like I've lost. Jesus, I pray that you speak to them. Just say, listen to the sound of my voice. Do what I say, and each step of the way, you'll get closer and closer to sight. Messiah, are you the one who restores sight to the blind, even now. Show them your glory. 
Is there any of us whose marriages or families or just soul just feels like the only thing you could say uh, to describe it would be it's just dead and buried and it's been dead for a long time? There's no chance. Are you still the resurrection and the life? And do you still stand at the door of the tomb and say, come forth, command life in our hearts and give us uh, resurrection in, in the places that are dead in our lives. Show us your glory. The one who gave his life up as a ransom to us all. You are our king. And we like Isaiah, just look up to you. Say, send us. Whatever you say, we'll do.